Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. With me today is Matt Wall, CEO of Acceleration Partners. As one of the world's leading partnership marketing firms, their client base consists of global brands including Uber, Adidas, and Target. Having joined as VP in 2012, Matt has driven the company's growth from five employees in 2012 to now over 300 globally. Today, we're going to discuss what marketing considerations scaling businesses need to be thinking about. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? And talk to us about the journey that you've had so far in relation to in relation to marketing and business. Uh, thanks. It's, I'm very excited to be here. It's been uh, an amazing journey. Uh, as you said earlier, I joined when we had five employees and uh, we were just trying to make a nice little business. And now, you know, 10 years later, we've become the global leader in partnership marketing. Uh, we focus on affiliate and influencer marketing for, for brands around the world. For, for those that aren't marketing professionals, and I'm certainly counting myself as one of those people, give me a bit more um, a, a, a depth and basis of, of, of partnership marketing, Matt. You kind of gave a bit of an introduction there, but for anyone else that's listening that doesn't know, partnership marketing, how's that described? So the fundamentals of it are when a, uh, a advertiser, a brand that's looking to bring in new customers or, or revenue, partners with uh, any number of third parties uh, on the internet and uh, creates a program where those third parties can promote the advertiser and refer customers and, and business. And these programs can take lots of different forms. Affiliate marketing is one kind. Influencer marketing is another kind. There, there are other forms as well. But ultimately, you know, these programs make up probably somewhere around 20% of all the, the commerce that's occurring on the internet. Uh, and they're, they're a major tool in, in the toolboxes of companies these days. You mentioned it at the beginning, you kind of, the, the aim at the beginning was, oh, oh cool, we've got a you know, little consulting firm. Has the, has the aim of Acceleration Partners evolved as the business has? Have you had to step back and go, actually, we've got more here we should be doing? Let's, let's kind of revise what, what, what the original aim was? Yeah, so it's changed a lot. When we started, um, partnership marketing was one of the things that we did, but we were also doing other kinds of marketing. We were doing SEO and paid search and, you know, kind of we were a full service, you know, digital uh, marketing agency. Over time, we started to realize two things. One, we started to realize that we had created a very special culture and environment, which we felt uh, it would be a shame if we weren't able to, to expand and bring to, to more people. And second, we realized that by specializing in one thing, we could really build a much more uh, effective and scalable business than by doing lots of different things. Uh, Our founder and former CEO, Bob Glazer, and myself have always been big fans of Southwest Airlines and kind of, you know, the famous business school uh, case studies about them and how they just said, this is what we are. We're doing one thing really well. And around 2016, we decided we were going to do that. And, and that's really when the incredible growth of the company took off uh, from that point. Um, as someone that scaled a business from uh, yeah, three of us to kind of over 200 that we are today, I know that one of the most interesting things has been the constant looking and thinking when is the right time to invest in different areas as you grow. Because as, as, as anyone that's been involved in a, a brand new startup will know, Cash is very much king, and you've got to be bringing some in as, as much as you can before you can, you can start doing uh, um, uh, and, and spending different areas. There are some areas, of course, that you can use outside outside consultants for. I think recruitment's a pretty good example. I think it's an expensive thing to use specialist agencies, but ultimately, you want good talent. Sometimes you have to use just that. Marketing, by the sounds of it, partnership marketing is clearly an area that 
businesses will reach out to specialist firms to be able to do just that. How should a business go about the thought process between, is this an outside consultancy that we need, or is this something that we should be hiring internally for? Yeah, it's a really good question. And as an outside consultancy, we talk to clients about this all the time, right? Yeah. You know, what I think one of the things for me that's really important is predictability of the function, right? Recruiting is a really great example. As we were growing, our need for talent was very lumpy, right? We would hire a new, uh, we sorry, we would uh, acquire a, a new big customer and all of a sudden we need a bunch more people. You know, this happens all the time. Uh, and so th- the need to be able to scale up and down the resources uh, when we needed it uh, was really the most important thing because we couldn't predict if we were going to need five people or 25 people, you know, in the next month. Uh, it, it was dependent on so many binary outcomes of, of client acquisition. So uh, that, I think, is a, is a major point. When it's not very predictable, you are usually going to be better off going outside. And I see a lot of companies, we're doing acquisitions now as part of our strategy, and we're looking at a lot of companies to buy. And we see a lot of companies that have resources that are in areas that are not very predictable. And to me, that's not a great allocation, right? But over time, as those re- as the predictability grows, then that's when it becomes much more uh, important to have uh, internal resource. However, at that point, you hit the second problem, which is redundancy and uh, knowledge transfer. If you have one person, a recruiter, uh, in your company, and that person leaves, right, then you're in trouble. So, you know, it, for us, we have a lot of clients that have internal partnership marketing managers, but they also use us as an agency because they want to ensure that they have redundancy, they want to ensure that they have best practices, and they want to ensure that uh, there's knowledge transfer and that they're not at risk if that internal resource does you know, make a different decision. So I think to me, again, predictability and then redundancy become the two biggest factors that, that a scaling company should be thinking about. Absolutely. And um, one of the big journeys that I've gone on, and obviously I'm, I'm talking about marketing broadly here, and I appreciate that obviously what you guys do is, 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 is very specialist and purposefully so. But one of the big balancing act that CEOs have got to do, of course, is where you put your pounds and your pence or your dollars, <laughs> your dollars and your dimes, so to speak. So I think like all these things, I'd be fascinated to hear your opinion on is that there are some things that marketing functions do, of course, that is extremely difficult to track. Or am I getting that completely wrong? Do you think that they're, that they're, they're overall is ROI that can be attributed to all marketing spend or just some? I think that there's an ROI that contributed to most marketing spend, but not all. Mm-hmm. And I think actually, it, I, I'm going to say something which is actually contrary to our business because we're a very performance-based business, right? But I think that there absolutely is brand spend that where direct ROI cannot necessarily be attributed. But the key is uh, understanding at least the, the the business conditions that you are looking for that directionally show that that is working, and also making sure that as you're budgeting for that, you know that that you are looking at it and saying, I've got this percentage that I'm going to put into this non-direct ROI bucket, and I'm going to stick to that. And, and, and a lot of times what we see is, you know, you start with that at 10% and all of a sudden it's 40% because there's this cool thing and that cool thing. But but if that non-ROI-based you know ROI based stuff starts to, to, to creep, uh, you can run into trouble. But we I definitely think that, that it is important to have that, but it's important to have a very clear strategy and to have uh, other kinds of metrics you can look at that are more high-level business metrics that can allow you to understand directionally if it's working or not. And, and that'd be the other interesting thing to ask you specifically, Matt. Obviously, given the specialist area of marketing that you guys are involved in, 
what challenges um, should CEOs be aware of that their marketing team are facing? Because as I mentioned, ROI and tracking stuff and having it measurable is one of the things that I repeated, repeated, repeated um, to our um, to our marketing team of this is this is going to make your case of. Uh, spending on this or doing this project a, a, a damn sight easier if you can attach something tangible to it. But are there other are there other challenges that the marketing team have faced that you that you can recognise from your unique position as CEO within a kind of a, a specialist marketing consultancy? Yeah, absolutely. And and we actually just wrote um, a book that's a lot about this topic called uh, Moving to Outcomes. But the the thing that I think a lot of CEOs don't fully understand is how beholden a lot of companies have become to platforms like Google and Facebook and the other and the other large marketing platforms uh, on the web. And as companies are, are doing more and more or all of their marketing online, right? What marketing departments are faced with right now is that costs have gone up dramatically. If you look at you know the average costs on any of those large platforms, uh, they have surged over the last several years. And so right now, it is much harder for companies to drive the same levels of ROI from that marketing as they did three, four, five years ago. Now, I'm not saying that people should not be using Google or Facebook. They're amazing tools. They have allowed companies to grow in ways that were not possible before. But what we think is very important is diversification of that portfolio. And we talk about it like it's a stock portfolio. Like you would never have your entire stock portfolio in just Google stock and just Facebook stock, right? Especially over the last six months because you would have killed. Uh, But, um, you know, you would want to have a diversified portfolio. So I think one of the challenges that marketing uh, departments have right now is figuring out where they can get return outside of those places where for the last several years, it's just been like a slot machine. It's just like, put your money in and it works, right? So, you know, as a, as a partnership marketing firm, you know, obviously I think we're, we're biased here, but, but we believe that partnership marketing is one of the key areas for diversification for marketers. But whether it's partnership marketing or other things, we think having a, a basket of tactics is important and it's important for CEOs to understand these dynamics and where dollars can be put to, to get return outside of these more traditional platforms. Yeah, interesting. And I think that comes back to one of the other things I was looking forward to speaking to you about. Between the correlation between a company's vision, an organization's vision, and effective marketing, I'd be really interested to hear, you know, uh, you, you hear these phrases all the time of purpose-driven marketing and things like this. And I'd be really interested to hear uh, of, of what your opinion is in relation to that correlation between vision and effective marketing. Yeah, I, I think that they're they're critical. You know, we work with a lot of brands that uh, I think see themselves as purpose driven, and uh, they're they put their values in their marketing. Uh, a lot of the, especially like direct to consumer brands that have come up over the last you know number of years, that's a big part of what they're doing. You know, Allbirds or you know in the old days, it, you know, Warby Parker was kind of the OG of that, uh, or Tom Shoes. There's so many of these of these companies that have have made that part of their mission and it lends authenticity to the marketing. And especially, you know, from the partnership marketing side, what we see is that partners want to work with brands that have an authentic message and value proposition and purpose that aligns with theirs. And so we see partnership programs where there is that alignment that work really well. And again, that that's just something you can't do on Facebook because, you know, when, when you're, buying ads on Facebook, the algorithm is not taking into account like your 
your purpose, right? But when you're working with a partner or other marketing channels, you can actually get that alignment. And we see that as working so well because it's such an authentic message to the customer. One of the other things I was fascinated to look into acceleration partners is that obviously you're working across a lot of different countries across the globe. Yes. Um, and one of the things, of course, that does feel very appealing in an increasingly video-based <laughs> um, setup is that I think people feel like they've got much more global access than ever before. I'd be really interested to know from for businesses looking at things on, on a global marketplace level, Matt, what are the marketing-specific steps needed to be able to do this effectively? Because I'm sure it could easily be done badly, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I think there's two primary things, right? The the first thing we see all the time is that companies that have a really great brand presence in one country will go into another country and assume that people know who they are. (laughs) And they will market as if people know who they are. But because no one knows who they are, that marketing is completely ineffective because your marketing is very different right when you have brand recognition. So the the first and most critical thing to understand is what is your brand recognition in that market and do you have to educate people about who you are and what your product is or can you just speak to them in the way that you speak to 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 folks in, in your home market. And we see companies mess this up all the time. It, and it also goes to just kind of, you know, product market fit. There's a classic story about Starbucks and how Starbucks went to Australia and they opened up their stores just as their stores were in the US and Australia. And they completely tanked because people in Australia want a very different experience from their coffee than Starbucks was offering. And Starbucks ended up basically shutting down all their stores. And I think they just went back into Australia with a new strategy, but they assumed, right, that that it was the same and it isn't. So I think that those are critical. And, and it's also critical to understand that the acquisition economics in different countries are going to be different. And you have to really make sure that your budgets are being built in such a way uh, that that takes that, that into account. Because again, if you're going into a new market, it is much, much more expensive to acquire the net new customer versus bring back the existing customer. And so usually you're going to see that the costs are much higher as you're bringing into new markets. So it's really important for companies to understand that and, and budget accordingly. A slightly selfish question, this one, uh, Matt, for sure. But the the thing that I've regarded the business so far is that you have different chapters to it. What's right for the business, sub 10 people, and then sub 50 people, and then that kind of 50 to 150 people, and, and then 200 and beyond is definitely another chapter. How have you gone about making sure that the CEO, that you're going to step back and you make sure that your own company's marketing strategy is in line with where the business is now? Because that's not an easy thing to do with working yeah. frenetically and hard day to day. I think that, that 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 bit can be tricky. So it'd be great to hear your experience of that journey. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest part of it is understanding that the people, as great as they are, a lot of them that get that, that are with you from A to B will not be with you from B to C or from C to D, right? It's just not what they want. It's, you know, the skills don't match up. You know, when you're starting out, you need Swiss army knives. And then when you when you get bigger, you need people who are specialists. So so things change. Uh, and so I think to me, I can break down our, our growth phases into that kind into those stages, right, where we kind of have seen um, uh, uh, changes in the type of people that we need. And that goes into the marketing. When we started uh, uh, many years ago and for the first half of our development, all of our business was by referral. It was word of mouth from from friends in the industry and from happy customers. And that was plenty. 
But then we started to get to the point of needing to do more active lead generation. We actually needed to hire a sales team. And all of that stuff required very different skills. And so we had to bring on new people, new teams, new technologies. So for me, stepping back, it's really about looking at our growth plan. We have an annual growth plan. We have a three-year growth plan. We have a seven-year growth plan. And looking at those phases and saying, what are the skills and, and what are the technologies that we're going to need in those next phases and making sure we have them ready to go so that we're not scrambling when we get there. Uh, so I think an understanding of that dynamic is, is critical and has been for us. What, what, what are the three things that CEOs should be asking of their marketing team, in your opinion, Matt? Uh, the three things that CEOs should be asking their marketing team, I think one is, do they have a very clear understanding of that split between spend that should have an ROI that can be attributed and spend that that shouldn't, number one. Uh, number two is, do they really understand the customer and are they getting enough of the voice of the customer so that they're reacting to that versus what we think the customer wants? And then number three, I think is, you know, are they being efficient? Are they constantly looking at what's working and what's not working and then recalibrating? Or are they continuing to put money into strategies where uh, it's not clear that you're getting what you need? So it, it look, testing and learning is critical. And, I, and there's a lot of testing that happens and you put money into it and it doesn't work and that's fine. But you got to make sure that you're cutting that off and moving on to the next thing as opposed to continuing to put money into those failed strategies. And you'd be surprised how often that happens. Nice. That's some um, some absolute gold there, Matt. Yeah. I think like all these things, it's uh, it's always <laughs> fascinating to be speaking to people about you know, uh, specialist areas and these things because uh, a lot of the time you have to be a bit of a generalist as a CEO. You kind of, you, you've you got to do a bit of everything, all, uh, certainly at least all right and hopefully a few things rather well. But uh, that's, a, that's a great perspective. Thank you very much for sharing. The book that you wrote, Moving to Outcomes, you touched upon it briefly earlier. It's one of the things I ask everyone of, has there been a, a book that's impacted you? So we'll get to that question in a second. But Richard Branson said uh, an industry event that we were at for some award ceremony a few years ago that everyone uh, who was in that room at the time should write a book at some stage because it's a it's a really interesting and and, and uh, really interesting and learning process. What made you want to do the book to begin with, and, and and how did you find that process? Yeah, so we actually wrote our first book. Um, I think it was five years ago or so. It was called Performance Partnerships, and the reason we wrote that book was that our industry was at this tipping point of moving from kind of, you know, uh, a sideshow uh, to to a more main event in, in the digital marketing world. But there were still a lot of people who didn't understand it and who didn't um, understand uh, the development of it. And so we wrote that book actually as, as an educational tool and as a sales tool. And so what we ended up doing was we didn't sell any copies of that book. We basically just shipped out you know, 25,000 copies uh, to uh, to potential customers and all of that. And it became an incredible uh, sales tool for us because when people read it, they started to say, oh, now I get why I need to do this and, and I get why I need a great partner like Acceleration Partners. So that was the impetus for the first book. The impetus for the second book became that, you know, CEOs and CMOs, uh, to your question before, uh, they still don't have as good of an understanding of what we are doing uh, as the kind of more mid-level marketing people who are in the weeds. And so we felt that we we still needed to educate the C-suite about what's going on. So, so to your point, you know, even though they're generalists, that they can start to really understand why investment in these areas are important. So for us, these books were really about education, uh, and it was, and they're also about I think getting our own 
thoughts together and our own value proposition together. If you put it in the book, you can't change it later, right? So you got to really think carefully about how you're you're framing the value proposition. And so our first book became the core of our you know value proposition for five years, and, and our new book will probably be the core of a value proposition for the next five years. I listened to a brilliant podcast in the last couple of weeks. Um, there's a, it's a UK based podcast, but it has a brilliant global sea of guests on it, and it's called the High Performance Podcast, and it had a, the, the former CMO of Nike on it. A mm-hmm. chap called Greg Hoffman. Now he's got a book out there at the moment, which I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into because Greg's is one of the best podcasts that I've heard in relation to his philosophy. Um, hearing some of the stories in relation to some of the, Nike, the famous Nike campaigns over the mm-hmm. years. So, if anyone that hasn't listened to that, I'd seriously recommend it. But is, is, is there been any book or podcast that's been a long-lasting learn for you, Matt, on the journey so far? Yeah. So, so two that I come back to all the time. Uh, the first one is. Um, the five dysfunctions of a team. If you're familiar yep. with with that one, it's a classic. It's an oldie but goodie. But we use it all the time. Uh, we have a program at our company where all of our people managers uh, are uh, able to join monthly uh, leadership training forums where they kind of work in small group teams and and do trainings and 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 experience shares. Every six months, uh, we come back to the the five dysfunctions of a team with with those groups, and you know it really has become uh, the foundational bedrock of of my philosophy and, and really the whole company as well. So so that's a big one. Uh, the other one is a book called Range, uh, which I don't know if you've read, but it is kind of the the response to Malcolm Gladwell's like ten thousand hours, uh, you know, hypothesis. You know, Gladwell kind of said if you, you spend ten thousand hours on anything and become the expert. Uh, in, in the book Range, it, it actually goes about trying to show that really successful leaders and really successful decisions come from people who have a wide breadth of experience versus people who are incredibly narrow and incredibly deep on a single on a single topic. And so you were talking before about CEOs being generalists. So it may be like a confirmation bias for me, but I, I really gra- gravitate to that message. Um, and and I've I've shared that book with a lot of people who have wanted to take the the leap into into next levels of leadership. Love that, Matt. And I'll absolutely. I've, I've unfortunately I've got a pile of books from this podcast <laughs> that we've been doing on my desk, and I've, uh, I started biking to work after lockdown. And thankfully, I've got a good little Audible uh, <laughs> subscription going on where I can at least do some listing whilst I'm on my bike. So range will definitely be included with that. Thank you for Excellent. that recommendation. Um, now, one of the other things that I love to ask on these on these conversations because ultimately hearing about people's journey so far, hearing about how they've gone about their own development. And again, one of the big things we say internally is that it doesn't matter if you're in my job or if you're the newest trainee in the business, whatever it may be, if you've got an appetite and a hunger to learn all the time, you're going to hopefully end up in an all right position. And people's way that they've gone about their own development is very, very different, of course. And it'll be really interesting to hear um, what you've found to be your most effective personal methodologies that you've used to grow and develop as a leader um, in your career so far, Matt. Yeah, so mentorship has definitely been the biggest one. And I, I was very fortunate. I don't know what your situation has been, uh, but I was very fortunate that, you know, I joined the company as a vice president. We had a founder and a CEO who um, loved learning and spent an, an enormous amount of time learning and was very uh, generous in terms of bringing me into that and, you know, bringing what he learned to me and, and passing that on. So, you know, I became CEO last year. But I spent 10 years, you know, working with our former CEO, Bob Glazer, and, and learning so much from him uh, in terms of all the different things that that, that he brought. So uh, in, in addition to him, we have external coaches. I have personal mentors. So 
for me, working with mentors is definitely the biggest thing. The other thing, though, actually is kind of the, the opposite of that. So many of my leadership lessons have come from spending a lot of time talking to employees at the company, right? And I, I spend an, an enormous amount of time uh, sitting down with people at the company individually and in groups and understanding them and understanding uh, what they need, both as people and also as, as employees. And I think by doing that, I am then able to really make the best decisions I can for the business. Uh, I Unfortunately, I, I do think that a lot of CEOs don't spend a lot of time with people below their leadership team. And it's a little bit of a cliche, but but you can start to lose touch. And, and I do think that that that's a real problem. So uh, I, I think that having so many of those conversations, I have a one-on-one uh, with every single new hire for our company, uh, a half hour one-on-one. And so I've probably done 250 of those in the last 24 months. And it's a lot of time. And people say to me, why would you do that? Uh, but actually, to me, they're one of the most valuable things that I've done because I've learned so much about leadership in terms of talking to those people, understanding what they need. Um, so, so I think it kind of bookends the, the question in that way. Awesome. Um, yeah, fascinating. And I, I, yeah, we, we tend to hire in groups of five to 10 people. And so I've, I must admit, I'm, I guess I'm taking a bit of a shortcut and having a group meeting with, 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 with everyone that starts. So I felt like I was doing okay there, but one-on-ones with everyone, Matt, that's, that's some commitment to it, but I get totally why. I've got a book, a book recommendation to share back to you just on some, because yeah. it does different studies from the, yeah, the military, but then like charity and the politics and everything else in between. It's called The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. Um, and that's a really fascinating book because actually one of the one of the big um, one of the big experiments that they looked at was with a big consultancy firm and might have been Tata Consulting perhaps where they basically had a group of people that had the CEO speak to them within the first forty eight hours of them joining the business and sharing the vision and sharing what they're part of and then a group of people that didn't have that same experience and the retention rate and the productivity rate understandably with a group that had had that vision from the CEO in the first 48 hours in particular was like 40% better than the group that didn't. So I think that was just a really fascinating, it's just stuck in my memory ever since yeah. then. It's just a good reminder, isn't it, of tying it all back to something bigger. I, I will definitely read that. I've heard of that book, but I've not read it. I will definitely read that because I think that that's fascinating and that's the kind of stuff that, that I believe. And look, I believe very firmly in servant leadership, right? And, and kind of leading from behind and ultimately I don't think you can do that, right? If you're if you're not kind of understanding who who it is that 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 you're being servant to, so uh, I love that, and I'll definitely read that book as well. You you touch upon something else interesting, which I think is is definitely a, the conversation that our listenership will um will relate to. One of the saddest things that when I took this job almost a couple of years ago was that I realised that uh oh, I just don't think I'm going to be able to conduct the final interviews with trainees coming into the business anymore. Um, you mentioned there about having one-on-ones with every single person that joins the business, Matt. How long does that go on for? Like, you know, can that go on when you, if you don't know what the the the, the growth rates or expectancy are with, with 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 your business? But like, when that gets to three fifty, four hundred, four fifty, five hundred, does it have to stop at a point? And how do you make sure that you stand back and go, "Am I happy with how I'm using my time?" Because that for me is almost a constant question that, on a weekly basis, I'm doing that thing about, mm, "Is this too much of this? Too much of that?" Yeah, how do you get on with that? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I the, I don't know kind of what the cutoff point is at which point it will not be feasible, and I'm, I maybe I'll have to start doubling up. Uh, so I, I I can't really answer that question specifically. There, there unfortunately probably will be a point where where that happens. Uh, but in terms of of time, 
you know, we have a, a coaching external coaches who have uh, told me that they believe that CEOs and and top executives at companies should be spending at least forty percent of their time uh, out with the people at the company and evangelizing the the message and the vision. So so I find you know these new higher inter- these new higher meetings go into that forty percent as do, do other things. So in general terms, that's what I'm thinking about it, right? Am I spending forty percent of my time uh, kind of out in the field with the people that 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 we're leading, and, and and I think that that's a good number. I think what you do with the rest of that sixty percent is totally different between companies. Uh, I have a very high functioning leadership team. They are very autonomous and they are very much, uh, one of our core values is own it. They are very own it people. So, you know, I probably spend less one-on-one time with our team than maybe other CEOs do, but we have a weekly 90 minute leadership team meeting that is in stone. You don't miss it. Uh, You know, I have 30 minute one-on-ones with everybody. Um, We have quarterly two-day strategic offsites uh, so there's a lot of time that that's going into that, but it's less about me kind of getting in the weeds with those folks and more about hopefully really understanding their strategic challenges and working with them to, to remove the bottlenecks. Awesome. Some brilliant stuff included in that, Matt, and, and, and very thought-provoking stuff indeed as well. As always, it's been really great to share your journey and leadership learns with us today, Matt. Thanks so much for coming on. I know there'll be lots that will resonate with listeners because like me, they're already thinking about a few of those areas and thinking, well, is what we do off-site enough? Is, 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 is all the rest of that from that last statement as well. Thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network. Matt, thanks again for coming on. 